Hello, my name is Elizabeth Howard. Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast. Conversations around the arts, music, dance, literature, theater, and film. And those issues that we believe are influencing the arts. Short Fuse is produced by the Arts Fuse, the online journal that brings you arts, commentary, and criticism. We engage, we explore, and we ask questions. Welcome. conversation, I'm speaking with Neil Gorin, who is a conductor and now the conductor and artistic director of Catapult Opera. Neil, it's lovely to have you on this short Fuse podcast. I'm delighted to be part of it. There's so much to talk about as we are emerging from this extraordinary year, a year that's altered our lives and our sense of time. I could go on. I'm seeking your insights around opera because it seems of all the arts, it is the place where we can see, feel, and touch emotions. And it's an art form appropriate to describe the last year, perhaps the last four years, opera conjures grand drama. I want to talk about Catapult, the opera company you have recently founded, and your book, Beyond the Area, Artistic Self-Empowerment for the Classical Singer. Let's, as an entree point, begin with how you became a conductor. It isn't a career that one thinks about a young child imagining. Actually, I, I never thought of being a conductor. I, I did somehow, in retrospect, I did prepare for it because as a student, as a youngster, basically from age 9 to 13, I spent every summer at Interlochen in northern Michigan, which is National Music Camp. And one of the courses I took was an introduction to, I think, the orchestra or whatever. So I learned to play something on every instrument. And I enjoyed it, and I did it. I'm the only person who did it three years in a row because I was just so interested to actually get some sense of how to play all these instruments. Then I didn't think about it again. I was a pianist, and that was my focus, and that's what I did. And had some success and lived in, in England on a grant doing it as a pianist. Anyway, uh, fast forward a few decades, actually, and I was accompanying the great baritone Thomas Hampson in a coaching with Leonard Bernstein. We were preparing some Mahler songs that turned out to be Bernstein's final recording and an early Thomas Hampson recording. So during a break, while Bernstein was smoking like crazy, he said to me, (laughs) so maestro, where are you conducting these days? And I said, oh, I'm not a conductor, I'm a pianist. And he said, he, he put down his cigarette and looked at me seriously and said, he said, I think you need to rethink that. He said, you play like a conductor, you listen like a conductor, you think like a conductor, and you express yourself like a conductor. And I thought, hmm. Well, it didn't really strike me as surprising, but because it seemed, it sounded right. I just wasn't yet ready to hear it. Uh, because also, just a few months prior to that, I'd been playing auditions uh, for a Porgy and Best production that was happening at Teatro La Fenice in Venice. And... Uh, Upon playing these auditions, whole rounds of auditions, both for instrumentalists and for singers, um, they offered me a job on their music staff and as, a, as an assistant conductor and a cover conductor for the production. And at the time, I said, oh, no, I'm not a conductor. And then when Bernstein, just a few months later, said, you are a conductor, you just need to accept that, I thought, hmm, if I'm going to listen to anybody, he would know. So I thought this really does feel right and sound right, and, but what's holding me back? And then I had to think about it emotionally. As a, and so I went into therapy for a few years until I really felt that it was, I was really 
ready mm. emotionally to be a conductor and to sort of take up what he had said was my destiny. And so then I did it, and that was that. Oh, such a wonderful story. We met after I attended a performance of Toshio Hosokawa's The Raven at the Lynch Theater at John Jay College. And I remember it so vividly, Neil. You know, it was a solo at about 45 minutes, mezzo-soprano and chamber orchestra. And although Edgar Allan Poe's poem wasn't necessarily set to be an opera, it was stunning. Um, the chamber orchestra with you conducting in darkness on one side of the stage. There was a dancer. And I recall... I recall the lighting. It was a pastel, perhaps green, almost a haze at the back of the stage. And this was a performance of the Gotham Chamber Opera, which you ran from 2000 to 2015, and just one of the many innovative and imaginative programs. I am so sorry that I missed the Hayden's Olmundo della Luna at the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History. Um, the production featured NASA-generated moon travel projections on the planetarium's 360-degree dome. So perhaps, you know, I, I think I've given people a sense, if they didn't know the work of the Gotham Opera, that it wasn't sort of traditional. And perhaps you can tell us more about the Gotham Chamber Opera and what it achieved. Sure. That's, that's something I love talking about. Um, when I came on the scene in year 2000, this transpired because... I had was already decided I was a conductor and I had done my therapy, but I was not getting jobs as a conductor. I um, was known as a pianist because I'd been touring around with great singers, with Kathleen Battle, with Leontine Price. And so all the opera companies knew me, but they knew me as a pianist. And so I was not tried in any way as a conductor, so they didn't feel safe in trusting me, a production to me. So around that time, a friend of mine, Carolyn Stessinger, had taken over the music department at the Henry Street Settlement downtown. And she called me and she said, oh, I've got this great theater that it would be, and you should conduct, you should start an opera company. And she said, you could do wonderful productions, scaled down productions of Aida and of Trovatore and of Don Giovanni and of Carmen. And I thought, hmm, the last thing the New York City needs is small productions of big operas. We, at that point, we had the Met, one of the greatest opera companies of the world, and City Opera, which was then one of the greatest opera companies in the world as well. So I thought that's the last thing we would need. But to humor her, I went and saw the theater, which is and was stunning. So 350 seats, Adam's style, and had recently been lovingly restored. And so I thought, well, what could I do there that actually would fit a niche that needs to be filled? So I decided to do chamber opera, which is something that was a genre that was... Mm, very important in the uh, 17th century, the early part of the 18th century, not at all in the 19th century, because 19th century in the arts was about bigger is better. And then again, in the 20th and 21st, well, there was not yet a 21st century, in the 20th century, uh, it, it became important again. And always it was important because you could uh, mount these things basically for less money. It's usually is without chorus, or a small chorus, small orchestra, running anywhere from, say, nine instruments to... I did one, a Respighi opera, that chamber opera that had, like, 30 instruments. So that was really... That, that pushed the, the envelope for, for that size. And casts, mm. small, sometimes as few as four, sometimes as big as 12. But this is nothing like doing uh, Tristan at the Met or something, where you've got 
huge sets, a huge costume budget, chorus of 80 people, orchestra of 100. It's a whole different gesture, an intimate gesture. And this theater was very intimate and very beautiful. And until we outgrew it, we used it for all of our first, maybe perhaps five productions. But then that was just too small for any of the repertoire that I wanted to do. And too small for our audiences, too, because we started out with an unknown Mozart opera called Il Sogno di Scipione, wonderful piece, and this was the uh, U.S. premiere of it. I didn't think it was going to be a company. I just thought I was going to do a production. But it was such a huge hit, and with audiences lined up outside the Lower East Side, the Henry Street Settlement, and um, New York Times Review and Opera News Review, that people were actually clamoring for more. So then I formed a board and started um, started what turned out to be Gotham Chamber Opera, which was originally Henry Street Chamber Opera. But we moved when we moved theaters, then we changed the name, and it all worked, went very well. So the first performance of your new opera company, Catapult, is The Glitch, a 22-minute, two-character opera by composer Nico Millet and uh, librettist Greg Pierce, and performed by baritone Lester Lynch and soprano Christy Swan. A link is in our podcast notes and on the Catapult website so people can watch it. The piece powerfully demonstrates how the small screen can make opera intimate. I felt that after I'd watched just a few minutes. I was alone with these people. I could feel their emotion. I could smell the sweat on their bodies and touch their pain because you're, you're so close to the performers in a way that you certainly cannot be in a theater like the Metropolitan Opera that seats over 3,000 people. I felt that the performance has some of the power that James Baldwin's words have on paper. And wow. the Grief and Grievance exhibition currently on view at the New Museum, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, Neil, uh, is Not filled yet. with music and film. This piece could easily have been included. I mean, I, I, I thought immediately of it. You, you, you will enjoy the, you, know, you should see the show. Um, so what is your vision for Catapult? Can you share with us some of the work yeah, sir, you I certainly can. be producing? Uh, in the same way that Gotham had a vision that responded to what the needs of the industry were or the needs of the audiences in the year 2000 through 2015, uh, Catapult is positioned to do the same for our time. In 2000, 2015, all, we, all people knew was big operas, big productions in big theaters. And I felt it was incumbent upon me to let people know that there was more that opera could do and that by... Uh, exploring chamber opera, which I felt basically distilled the power of opera, made it much more intense by being in a smaller space and with uh, smaller forces um, that I could accomplish that. And then once that started catching on, people understood that fact, and it really was a fact, then I thought, hmm, how can I get people more, yet more excited about opera? And then I decided to actually change uh, venues instead of just doing things in uh, proscenium theaters to try other spaces, for, but appropriate spaces. You had mentioned the Haydn uh, Il Mondo mm -hmm. della Luna at the Planetarium. Uh, that came about because the piece deals with a family that's been duped into thinking they've been taken to the moon. <laughs> and I thought, well, I could do this perhaps. I could do it at, at, in a normal uh, proscenium theater, but why not do it someplace where it could be really cool? And so I thought of the Planetarium because the NASA had made, with, uh, in association with the planetarium, these incredible videos um, of a trip to the moon that was uh, immersive, that went onto their incredible dome. 
and we could incorporate that into the opera itself so that the audience would really feel, would go to, to the moon along with these characters. Then the trick was to find a director who was willing to actually think, I hate this expression, but think outside of the box and come up with a plan to incorporate this. And so I convinced Diane Paulus, the great Tony Award-winning director and the head of ARC in Boston, ART, excuse me. And it was a really wonderful production. So, and then I did something else in the, um, in the Brooklyn uh, Botanical Garden and something else at the, the nightclub, The Box. So these were all appropriate things in non-traditional spaces. Now, fast forward to, to now, the industry has changed. So all those things that I sort of initiated are sort of old hat. People are, there's, there are even companies that are specifically focus on operas in non-traditional venues. There are companies that uh, focus on all, uh, non-traditional repertoire, non-traditional spaces. Anyway, so things have changed, obviously. And so it's time for me to be responsive to the way in which the world has changed. So with the outbreak of COVID and we found people at home all the time, and then all of my friends, my musician friends, my singer friends, my composer friends, suddenly without work for, which has now been over a year, and really wanting to contribute and make art, I thought somehow my new company needs to pivot and do something to make the situation better for the people in the arts, as well as for people who are consumers of, of opera and the arts. So the first thing we did was put together a, a, a innovation competition. And for that innovation competition, I chose four scenes from four different operas that I had planned to produce live, but obviously were postponed because of COVID, and invited people to send me uh, different drafts of what they thought they might do with this to make it an innovative video of the, one of these five to seven minute scenes. And so from those, I and a team of international judges chose six finalists and um, awarded each of them $1,000 to produce their videos uh, and with their team. And then we had the competition and chose three winners, but it was so good we had to give it a couple extra prizes as well. But luckily we had found the money to do that. So that was to sort of increase the idea of how one can innovate for video because opera that's been seen in film for a long time has just been filmed with a stationary camera or maybe a few cameras capturing a live performance. So if you think about the Met broadcasts, they're really wonderful for what they are, but they're limited and it makes you feel that you wish you were actually at a live performance instead of the final product being this video that you were seeing, as good as it was, I thought that more would be possible. So that was the purpose of this of this competition, and we had some really good ideas and some really good entrants about what opera could do. But then I thought, now what's the next step? And I thought, we somehow have got to develop a new generation of opera goers, because as anyone who's been to the opera will admit that if you look into the audience, it's a sea of people with gray and white hair. And um, that's the future of opera cannot be that. Because for a long time, opera audiences were aging and the, the major donors, their children didn't feel any moral need to continue supporting opera in the same way that their parents were because it didn't, they didn't, couldn't relate to it and they didn't feel they could relate to it. So I thought something has got to be done to 
interest the next generation of opera goers and opera donors and get the industry to sort of light a fire. So that's how I came upon um, our initiative, which is uh, a commissioning series. Um, I th- can't remember what, what we called Opera Invigorate or something like that. Um, it will say in the website, uh, which is a commissioning program of micro operas, video micro operas. So I thought I would, the first one, I thought I would use an established classical composer. And so that's why I hired Nico Muley, which is the one that you're referring to, The Glitch, which is incredibly powerful, specifically because he doesn't do any bells and whistles. It's just Mm. cameras and people and music and emotions. So it's not, it's innovative because it's not innovative. He's not trying to be something it's not. It's clearly designed, both the music, the text, and the videography for at-home consumption on, on your computer or on your television. And I think it was very successful. It comes off that way. Our next uh, series of commissions are all commissions of people outside of the classical realm. They're people, composers or singer-songwriters, shall I say, from the realm of pop, largely popular music. So the next one that's coming up is by an incredible uh, rhythm and blues composer named Celise Henderson. And she just sent me the first tracks of this piece, which is incredibly powerful and incredibly relevant. I got to know her music during Black Lives Matter that some friends were posting it on Facebook. And I listened to these clips and I thought, this is an amazing composer. And it's so emotionally present and emotionally available. I thought thought she could do something really wonderful. So the assignment I gave her and all of our subsequent composers was to write something that they considered operatic. And some of them have never seen an opera, and that was fine with me. But what does operatic mean to them? And could they produce something for us with a sweet spot of 15 minutes? So uh, Celise Henderson's piece, which is about uh, life in the time of COVID. So there's one of the characters is a woman who's just has got to be alone and is unused to it and finds it very, very disturbing and upsetting. Another woman who has to be alone and she's loving it and just doesn't want that to end. And the third soprano character is uh, a frontline worker and uh, somebody who's, we would call a hero, though the world might not. It's really powerful and really, really moving. So I've now got the audio for that, and next will come the video that she's got some videographers who are working on this, and that's going to drop sometime during the summer. Lori Anderson is doing something for us, the great performance artist, composer, singer, songwriter. Uh, we've got uh, an incredible rock and roll composer named Tamar Kali, who is composing a scene for us. I'm hoping that uh, the singer will be, it's, it's going to be basically an extended aria, um, will be John Holiday, who was one of the finalists in The Voice on NBC, who's an amazing um, African-American countertenor who I've judged in competitions. He's just a, really a musical genius. Other things are that are coming up are, believe it or not, um, a metal singer-songwriter is doing something for us. And down the pipeline, there's a hip-hop composer I want to commission as soon as we get the funds and also somebody who does house music. So these are all things that I want to explore what the area is that overlaps between these classical music genres and opera. 
some work are going to be more successful than others, of course, but I think it needs to be explored if we're going to get new opera audiences, if we're going to get people who are used to listening to popular music interested to see uh, where the overlap can be. So that's the, that is the plan for the video operas that we're going to continue doing for Catapult. But parallel to that, we're going to be doing live performances that are more for established opera audiences that are going to deal with repertoire, again, chamber opera repertoire that's off of the uh, standard repertory. So the next one is going to be, the first one actually, a year from now, is going to be an opera by Toshio Hosokawa, who did The Raven, which you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I just fell in love with his music. This is an opera called Hanjo, which is, um, the text is by Yukio Mishima. It's one of his five no plays. So it's got, no. got everything Japanese, no play, uh, Mishima Hosokawa, the, great, the greatest Japanese composer alive today. So we're doing that. We've got another opera that's going to be not, I think probably about six months after that, which is um, by Nadia Boulanger, the most important woman in music history. A opera by her was just discovered, and I've been offered the U.S. premiere of it. And then another by Errol and Wallen, an African-American composer who's been living in England for a long time and has been knighted. She wrote an opera called The Silent Twins on the Gibbons Twins, who you might have read about at some point or another. These um, young girls who grew up in Wales, actually, in the 1960s, who developed their own language and pretended to be mute. But when they spoke, they spoke to each other that, in a language that no one else could understand. And these young women, they tried to be writers, and eventually they became criminals. They became arsonists. It's an incredibly operatic story that's... Uh, broad and wonderful. So those are a few of the productions that we've got planned. Another is by a composer friend of mine named um, David Hertzberg, wrote an opera called The Wake World, which got the 2017 American Music Critics Prize for the best opera of the year, beating out all of the known important opera composers. And um, I'm going to present the New York area premiere of that. But these, are, these are the sort of plans. So it's basically two avenues simultaneously. There's the avenue that's designed for the internet, and then there's the live performance. The internet is for new audiences largely, or older audiences who no longer have the wherewithal to pay $350 to go to the, the Met, and no longer have the interest in doing that and want to stay at home and get their content at home in a more easy situation, comfortable situation, and then the live performances for people who want to, who are opera lovers who want to hear new and interesting works. So I've, I'm sorry I've gone on for a long time, but that's it. No, 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 it's really, and I assume that's where the name catapult comes from, from sort of catapulting into the future. You know, I can't help but think, Neil, when you think of the budget for the Metropolitan Opera is $300 million, and... Oh, God. And you look at kind of the, the red velvet, the gold trim, the crystal chandeliers, you know, ex glasses of expensive champagne. They just seem to be from another century. I mean, do you think these elaborate, you know, these large theaters with elaborate productions, are they sustainable? And, you know, will they be reimagined? Well, I hope they are sustainable because I love this repertoire. I love mm -hmm. the 19th century repertoire. Mm -hmm. That's how I got into opera. And People, a lot of people really love that experience, but it is actually a museum experience because the, it's, right. the operas are all from 100 years past, or not all, but 90% of them. And the whole experience is 
from a former age, and you're either going to buy into that or you're not, and it is hugely expensive. So how is that going to be managed? I don't know how long that is sustainable. I hope it will be for a long time because people should have the opportunity. I think eventually there will probably be fewer performances because there'll be less audience that's, that's interested in attending these things and paying that sort of money because the costs are very, very high. But I hope it, it sustains, and I'm also hoping that my company will provide a door to loving that repertoire too. Yeah. And, and I think it's partly an interior design issue. I mean, if you look at something like the Armory or St. Anne's Warehouse, it's a matter of being able to adapt the space for other, for other uses. I mean, that's one of the difficulties, I think, with something like the Met. Um, it, it's hard. It's such a large theater. It's hard to, to use it for other you know, for other uh, perf- kinds of performances. So It's definitely purpose-built. Perhaps there'll be some changes there so that, yes, you can have your more traditional opera and yet you could have these other performances going on. I've been working with someone on a book on James Waring and, and one of the, you know, looking back at the 60s and this whole idea of the um, artists taking, becoming more multidisciplinary. You know, we look at the collaborations of artists, writers, painters, musicians, poets. We think of, you know, Cunningham Cage, Rauschenberg, Jasper Johns. And it seems like we really are seeing that again. I mean, that's what you're doing, right? I mean, it's finding these people who haven't been involved, but engaging them. Yeah, that's definitely something that interests me very much. I must say a lot of it comes from my desire to meet these people and to get to know them and to work with them. And that's what I did a lot with Gotham. We used some really, we'd used uh, Basil Twist, the great puppeteer, who's become a good friend, uh, some incredible visual artists, internationally known visual artists, um, and directors from the theater rather than from traditional opera and choreographers as well. I asked them to direct for, for me. A lot of it is just from my desire to get to know these people because out of respect for their work. And that may continue, but also if there's somebody whose work I see that inflames me that I think will be appropriate for a particular piece, that's what I'll definitely do. And, and even the costumes. I mean, didn't you work with Prada? I mean, you know, it's not, it's not having these large, you know, outfits. So let's talk about your book, which you published in 2020. Uh-huh. I, you know, I have so many friends who had books that were scheduled, well, were, were, were published and had been scheduled to be published while we were all quarantining, self-tethering. Um, so it, it took creative thinking to figure out how to launch the book and attract attention. So the title is Beyond the Area, Artistic Self-Empowerment for the Classical Singer, which I I understand it provides singers with the tools to develop an inquisitive and analytical mindset about the artistic details found in scores. Um, You know, as as a person who likes to cross boundaries myself, I, I, I thought about you know, this could also be a book for writers or dancers or even business people, um, you know, to, to think differently. To develop an inquisitive mindset. Yes. Yeah. What prompted you to write this? Well, the truth is, after, after Gotham Chamber Opera folded, I thought, hmm, how am I going to occupy my time? And so I wanted something that could enable me to synthesize the knowledge that I developed over the decades and to sort of contribute to the future and to stay relevant. Within about a month of when Gotham folded, I just I put together a book proposal and sent it to Amadeus Press, which is 
the one publisher of books about music that still exists. And because I thought they would be the only ones who would be interested. Though Oxford University, there are a few university presses do deal with books about music history, but this was not that. This is a much more a practical compendium. So I submitted it to um, uh, Amadeus Press, and I got no response, and I totally forgot about it. Then, fast forward, I guess, three years, one day a contract arrives in the mail. <laughs> the Apple Company was being announced in the New York Times. And I thought, oi, do I really want to do this, and do I have the time to do this? which are two different questions. Right, right, right. But I thought, hmm, if I really had the impetus to actually write this book proposal, it means that on some level I really do want to do this, and it is something that I can make time for, even though I'm so busy. But I decided that I, sh I really should. I owe it to myself, and I owe it to all of my students to actually put this down on paper. So I agreed and um, set up a, a date to deliver the manuscript, and I got it in a month in advance. What I did was I spent every day in after rehearsal of conducting Magic Flute in Italy. I'd come home and write for an hour. And I am usually a very painstaking sort of writer. I, it grieves me. I have to agonize over every word to make sure it's correct and that there's nothing better. That's for an audience of scholars and of people who are as persnickety as I am. But with this book, I realized it wasn't for audiences like me. It was for singers who really want some knowledge, the knowledge that I had to offer. So I just basically sat down and I would say, I'm going to write a chapter tonight on whatever. And I would sit down and write that chapter on whatever. And <laughs> uh -huh. without any problem, it just sort of spilled out because it was based on classes I've been teaching for decades. And made very, very few corrections, actually. I did go back and correct things, but it just sort of flowed out, and I'm very, very proud of it, very happy with it, and the uh, reaction has been extremely strong from people from the industry, and even from people outside of the industry, from people who are just lovers of opera, trying to see what the process is by which singers learn and study and should learn and study, and so often do not, but um, also conductors, pianists, all musicians, as you said, people even outside of the arts could actually expand their mindset and develop a relevant framework for themselves on how to develop an inquisitive mindset for themselves with, and as long as they articulate their goals. One thing I point out very much throughout the book is that if you do not know what your goal is, it's impossible to achieve it. The goal can be something small, like where does this phrase go? What are you trying to communicate in this phrase? Or it could be bigger. Where is the climax of the piece? What are you, is your character trying to communicate about themselves? Or it could be bigger still. What could be the character be trying to communicate about the world in which he or she lives? So there's lots of levels at which you can do this, but without being able to articulate what your goal is, there's no way to achieve it. Well, I actually uh, participate in this creative writing workshop with a, a, a writer who's, who danced with Merce Cunningham. So we, you know, we look at Cunningham and, and think about writing, and it's very helpful when you're looking at creative work. So I hope others will look at the book as well. Well, thank you. I hope so, too, but I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with it. I know you do teach, and you've taught at Mann's College and the New School for Music. It must be very difficult for students right now. I mean, obviously, we're always going to have music. I think we have more 
music brought us through much of, of the last year, but it's, it's difficult right now. So what, what, what do you tell them when they ask about their future and, and how they're going to make a living? I understand so many young musicians have left, well, and older too, have left New York because there's just no, you know, they don't know when they would have employment again. Right. Well, that's a really, really important question. And I think I've got to be honest with them. But the way I address this question, especially to my students at Manus, uh, many of them are overseas because they're not, we don't have live classes this year. We have classes that I teach remotely, either on Zoom or on Jam Kazam on one of those platforms. And just as a sideline, I usually teach these classes at like eight in the morning because they're in Hong Kong or wherever. And it's gotta be at a time that's convenient both for the people here in the United States and there. In answer to your question, what I tell them is that once people feel safe to go back into the theater, there's going to be a huge rush of opportunity for singers uh, because people will want to go back. They think that they've been missing going to opera. So they're going to buy tickets like crazy. There's going to be a million productions for a while. And then people will gradually realize why they were disillusioned with opera. A, it costs too much. B, it's a hassle to get to. You've got to park. You've got to get a babysitter. You don't get home till one in the morning. And then they will largely stop going. Well, hopefully not entirely, but to sort of the extent it'll go back to the level that it was prior to COVID is my guess. So what I'm telling all of my singers is that because there's going to be a huge uh, rush of opportunity, you've got to use this time to make yourself indispensable as an artist, both as a singer and both as a thinking artist, so that when you go into these productions, as the opportunity comes, you've got to make yourself so indispensable that each conductor, each director says, I really want to continue working with this person from now on. So that's been my advice for that. My Things are going to go back to uh, the former levels, at least for the big companies, I think within probably within two years. And it's incumbent upon people like me and people who have these other al alternative companies, for want of a better word, to start developing other audiences for opera and uh, both for big companies, for big productions and for small productions. Some others are really working at it. I've certainly spent a lot of time focusing on finding the best way to do this because the one thing I felt from the very beginning is the only way to get audiences is to have a brand that's about quality. So the music has got to have quality. If there's a video element, that's got to have quality. The performances have to have quality. Every aspect. Because people may not have uh, expertise in these areas, but they can smell it. They can really relate to whether this seems like it's something really worth being part of or not. I mean, you've talked, I've, I've heard you discuss that in interviews, um, Neil, about, you know, it's branding, it's individuals. At this point, I, I hope, people felt during the pandemic that it was a time to be creative and they needed to outreach and make a video of their own or, or do something. You know, it was, it was a chance where you weren't being judged. I mean, there were people were watching, people were listening, people were looking for new things. So it was really, it, it, well, it still is. It still is an opportunity, but, but you need to make a lot of it yourself right now too. Right. I think... Always, you've got to make your own opportunities. There are very few people for whom 
opportunities just fall into their laps. So I think, as I say, an inquisitive mindset will set you up for that as well, as you try and figure out where you fit within the industry and where the industry fits within the world and where, therefore, where you can fit within the world and what people need and what you have to offer. And if there's a line of intersection, that that's what you explore. Well, thank you, Neil. Bravo. I, I will follow the Catapult website closely, so I do not thank miss you. any of the performances that you're you, Make sure you're on the web, that, that you're on the mailing list, too. And that goes for everybody listening. I have subscribed already. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, I think it's great. So anyway, well, thank you so much for participating uh, today. and um, It's been a pleasure. And thank you for your perspicacious questions. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, so I hope to see, and I hope to see you soon, Neil. Me too. Thank you so much, and thanks everyone for listening. I appreciate it. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through the Short Fuse Podcast at gmail.com. You can support us through Patreon. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore and ask questions.